turning your Bibles with me, if you would, please, to Psalm 32. And ideally, I don't say this often because I don't want to create guilt in you or anything like that, but ideally, you'll be turning in a paper Bible. Because, and here's why I say that. I know I already hear the chuckles. If you have an iPad, I mean, certainly you can draw on a text in an iPad or maybe some other electronic device. But a paper Bible allows you the opportunity to circle things, underline things, star things, write little notes in the margins. So the next time you stick your nose in Psalm 32, you'll remember this moment right now. It has a powerful way of transferring God's word deeper into your heart when you take a pen or a pencil and apply it to the paper. It's okay to write in your Bible. It's okay. This morning begins a new sermon series, as Jim said, Summer in the Psalms. And the first psalm we're going to study together is Psalm 32. Now, there's a statement near the beginning of this psalm that actually gives a reason for why we are embarking on this study for the remainder of the summer. I want to show it to you. Look at verse 1 with me, Psalm 32. Oh, what joy, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven and whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record Yahweh has cleared of guilt. And here's, here's the sentence for why we're doing this this summer. Whose lives are lived in complete honesty. So I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and I think it renders David's idea here incredibly well. We're going to get that, get to that in a moment. But what David is doing at the very outset is he's calling for us to live our lives in complete honesty. And that line awakened in me about two months ago when I read and studied this psalm that so often as humans, we do not live our lives in complete honesty with ourselves or with each other. There is so much self-deception that is leveled at us by our flesh. Can I get an amen on that? There is so much self-deception. And there is so much deception leveled at us by the world and the devil. This unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil deceiving us. And it's so often that we're portraying a deceitful image of ourselves to others. We're just not honest with ourselves or with others fully you go, well, no, no, I, I, I tell the truth. All of it. And these spirit-inspired poems and songs, um, one of the prayer times this morning, someone prayed thankfulness uh, for the Psalms because they're raw, which is like us. These are... These are humans, just sons of Korah, David. They're humans just like us, sinners, all. And they are aiming at shaking us up and waking us up to the way things really are, to be completely honest with ourselves, and to the way th that things should be, or at least could be. 
Because it's only through complete honesty that joy and gladness and rejoicing will enter our lives. It's only through complete honesty that that'll happen. Now, I don't quote extensively very often anymore in my sermons, but I'm going to do it this morning because it's just too good not to as a setup for our entry into this sermon series. Walter Brueggemann has written a little volume called Spirituality of the Psalms, which I was reading I don't know for I don't know how many times I've read this little volume. It's reading it again. And and he describes the smelling salts nature of the Psalms this way. Much Christian piety and spirituality piety is just like living, okay? Much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. As children of the Enlightenment, we have censored and selected around the voice of darkness and disorientation, seeking as Christians, I would insert, to go from strength to strength and victory to victory. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it's a lie in terms of our experience. Brevard S. Childs is no doubt right in seeing that the Psalms as a canonical book is finally an act of hope. But the hope is is rooted precisely in the midst of loss and darkness where God is surprisingly present. The Jewish reality of exile, the Christian confession of crucifixion and cross, the honest recognition that there is an untamed darkness in our lives, that must be embraced. All of that is fundamental to the gift of new life. The Psalms are profoundly subversive of the dominant culture which wants to deny and cover over the darkness that we as Christians and followers of Jesus are called to enter. So often personally, we shun negativity. Publicly, we deny the failure of our attempts to exercise control. I got this. Against all of this, against all of this, the Psalms issue a mighty protest and invite us into a more honest facing of the darkness. The reason the darkness may be faced and lived in is that even in the darkness, there is one to address. The one to address is in the darkness, but is not a part of the darkness. You heard that from Jim this morning in 1 John. There's no darkness in him, none at all. Because this one has promised to be in the darkness with us, I just, I love, I would love to tattoo this on my body. Because this one has promised to be in the darkness with us, we find the darkness strangely transformed, not by the power of easy light, but by the power of relentless solidarity. Oh, man, you, you better get goosebumps on that. The relentless solidarity of Yahweh with us in the darkness of our own selves. Out of the fear not of that one spoken in the darkness, we are marvelously given new life. We know not how. The Psalms are a boundary thrown up against self-deception. They do not permit us to ignore and deny the darkness personally or publicly for that is where new life is given whether on the third day. You catch that? See what he's doing there? Where did, 
Where did all of life for you and the power for that life come from, family? Out of the darkness of a grave. Whether that's through the third day or by some other uncontrolled schedule at work among us. This is why we're doing summer in the Psalms. This is what we're going to wrestle with and work on together as a family over the next seven to eight weeks. An honest facing of the darkness within us and outside of us that threatens our joy. So that, so that we might have not an easy breezy kind of joy, but a joy that has been tested and tried by the fires of reality and confession and comes out the other side of that strong and resilient like a potter's craft out of the kiln. That's what I'm aiming for for us this summer. So can we be prayerful and expectant? Are you ready? All right, then buckle up. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of my heart be ever and always pleasing to you, O God, my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. This poetic song from David begins, note this, it begins and ends in joy. Joy, joy, rejoice, be glad, shout for joy, verses 1 and 2 and verse 11. So David is striking a tone of ecstasy that is available to serial sinners, which is great news. So my aim is his this morning. I want you to walk out of here through one of these three doors confident that your promised experience is one of this kind of joy. David wants you to be happy. Who wants to be happy? Who's just lying and don't really want to be happy? All right. I want to be happy. But most of us are not there yet at this moment right now, and that's because we've not been completely honest about our record. Have you ever filled out a job application? They always ask you this question on a job application, right? Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Have you ever been convicted of a misdemeanor, right? What do they want? They want to know if you have a record. And while you may not have a record, maybe you say no, no. You may may not have a record in the human justice system, but you definitely have a record before God, one that David brings up here at the very beginning. Oh, what joy, verse 1, for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. What joy for those whose, what? Record... Yahweh has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. So joy comes from our record being cleared of guilt. But for that to happen, we have to be honest about the fact that we have a record. Now, what is a record? A record is a list of the wrongs that you have done and could potentially be charged with. And the problem with most of us is that we don't take our wrongs seriously enough. We might look in the mountain mail. Like I did this last week and saw pictures of a really scary dude who was, as they say, on the lamb. The police department was asking for help to find this guy. There was this long, I mean, it was two paragraphs of the horrible stuff that this guy has done. And we look at a picture like that and we go, well, geez, at least I'm not like that guy. 
And then this Jesus who you proclaim to love preaches a sermon to you and says this. Your ancestors said if they murdered, they'd be liable for arrest and a trial and judgment. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to arrest and trial and judgment. If you call someone an idiot, okay, kids, listening? Adults, are you listening? Screaming at CNN or Fox News? If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Your ancestors said you must not commit adultery, but I say that anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The facts are this. Based on your record this week, based on my record this week, our chief of police could walk up on this stage, cuff me, and throw me in the Huskow. For real. According to Jesus. And we have to live in complete honesty about that. It's the only... It's the only way that you have hope of pardon is if it's only by being completely honest with yourself. Then you can have the joy that David is holding out for serial sinners right at the beginning here. See, he's given us the conclusion first. I want you to have joy. But you've got to be honest to get there. How did David get there? Ralph, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, just, I, he's such a, Amazing commentator, Old Testament. He described David's experience this way. This is so good. The misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. The misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. Listen to it. Verse three. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand, he's speaking of Yahweh there, of discipline was heavy on me and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Do you see? David's problem came from David's silence. He refused to confess his sin, a verbal thing, an out loud thing. What we did moments ago, reading Martin Luther, saying that out loud confessing the reality of who we are before God. When David was silent about that, things did not go well. He was deceiving himself. Do you think he was deceiving God? <laughs> hiding anything from God? His muteness led to misery. David describes this in three ways. He says it was wearing. His body war away. My body is wearing away. It's wasting away. And I don't think that's metaphorical for David here. We know, right? We know in our own experience, we know from studies that stress and anxiety and worry and holding stuff in messes with our bodies, oftentimes causing us to lose weight. For some of us, we eat our feelings and we gain weight. But for David, that was not his experience. I think he's speaking physically. My body is wasting away because I hide this stuff inside. David says that it was weighty. 
he realizes that it wasn't just stress in the abstract. It wasn't just something that he was doing to himself, but God's hand was heavy upon him, pressing down upon him. Have you ever been hiding something inside from other people? You ever done that? Of course you have. You're a human. We all have done this. And at times, have you ever described it like it feels like there's this crushing weight on your chest? It may be that that's God. That the reason that you feel like you can't even breathe is because God is trying to get your attention. David says it was withering. All his vitality and energy was sapped from him. It, it was evaporating like water in the summer heat <laughs> last week when we were getting those 80 plus degree, even 90 degree temperatures. And then we had that little drizzle that came through and I saw it on my sidewalk. And then like five seconds later, it was gone. So David is saying, that's his strength. It's just gone. Do you see? David is giving us a vivid picture of the misery of guilt for it affects not only his mind and his soul but his body and we feel the weight of it and it has destructive effects but there is mercy in this misery because in the words of Davis we see that God is at work sometimes in our misery. God refuses to let us be happy in our sin. Sometimes we get so shocked at that. Like, why my life is going so difficult and, and you're not being honest with yourself about your sin before God and God is, is pressing his hand on you for your good. He's like, I'm, I'm doing this because I love you. Because I don't want you to utterly destroy your life. There's mercy in the misery. Now, to be honest about our sin... To be honest about our sin, we have to know what it is. I'm just stating a lot of obvious things up here this morning, fam. To be honest about your sin, you have to know what it is. So David gives us a comprehensive anatomy of sin in this text as he reflects before God. He says in verse 1 that we are disobedient. We are disobedient. Sometimes the Bible calls this transgression. It is the refusal. Now, what you're going to see, right, is there's many facets to sin so that you can see it in your life. It's like a little legend on the map of your body. Transgression like this is a refusal to recognize an authority of someone else in your life. Parents know about this with their kids. Amen? Uh, Johnny, I want you to clean your room. You're not the boss of me! <laughs> yeah, I am. I brought you into this world. I can bring you out. Or maybe, do you remember telling a teen ever, parents of teenagers, what time they're supposed to be home at night? You can't always tell me what to do. Why are you always telling me what to do? And then we grow up, and all we do is get far more sophisticated, right? We, we, we laugh about examples like that, but we're just far more sophisticated in our disobedience. But at the end of it, we're just like the kid crossing our arms, telling God that he doesn't have the right to tell us how to live our lives. We're disobedient. We sin, verse one. It's the most common description of our wrongdoing. It means to miss the mark. Think of an archer not hitting the bullseye or a basketball player 
shooting and falling short of the hoop. And what does the crowd chant? Air ball. Or, you know, not putting the biscuit in the basket, avalanche. Come on, what the heck? Losing game five? Falling short. Was that too soon? <laughs> means to fall short. We are guilty, verse 2. Behind the rendering in the New Living Translation here is the concept that you're probably more familiar with, iniquity. Iniquity which brings a justifiable charge against us. It's, more vividly, it's this idea of being twisted or bent or, or perverse and, and misshapen because you're using something not for the purpose in which it was intended. And so we become perverse and distorted when we use our bodies in a way that God didn't intend them to be used. It's like me trying to, to pry something loose with a curtain rod instead of a crowbar and it gets all bent because I didn't use the right thing in the right way. We're guilty of iniquity and twisted. Finally, we don't live in complete honesty, verse 2. Behind this rendering here is, is the idea of deceitfulness. So anytime you are trying to hide, anytime you try to excuse your behavior, when you deny and deny and deny, right, when someone brings something up, hey, Matthew, I noticed when you, and then you, uh-uh, what, no, you, you don't see, no, that's not right. That's deceitfulness. One commentator says deceit is the engine behind the cover-up process. Okay. Look at me now because this is really important because here's what's remarkable. Even though he gives that comprehensive detailed analysis of the anatomy of sin in the human body so that you can understand in your life what sin looks like, it's actually crazy. That's not even his main point in verses one to two. His main point in telling you all of that is so that you will have joy. The absolute joy of living in complete honesty in the forgiveness that comes from God when we do. But the only way to get to that place is to be honest about our sin and to not, and to not play around with language that hides it. I made a mistake. It was an error in judgment. No, you sinned against a holy God and against your wife or your friend or your coworker. You didn't err. You sinned. And unless you see the twistedness of your sin and the revolt of your sin and the missing, the marked nature of your sin and the perverse nature of your sin, forgiveness will not mean squat to you. We say this a different way. I've, I've heard people here at Grace say it like, you don't know the good news until you really understand the bad news, right? Like, I, I'm not gonna understand the glory of forgiveness and the joy that can flow from the glory of that forgiveness unless I understand what I'm being forgiven from, delivered from. But when you do see that sin and you have an eye for it and you point it out and you're revealing it in your life, then what follows after the forgiveness that comes from God is relief and release. Listen to verse five. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt and I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to Yahweh. And you forgave me and all my guilt is gone. David reveals a stunning irony here. When you try, do, do you see what, what's happening here? 
There's two kinds of covering of sin that are being revealed in this text to us. There's that when I try and do it, when I try and cover my sin, things go really bad and really wrong. God's hand is heavy upon me. My body wastes away. It's bad news. But when I finally open up and reveal that, the thing that I was afraid of, because people are going to see who I really am. I have to admit to God who I really am. I have to be completely honest about that. When I finally do that, what does God do? he covers it back up. But see, when God does it, it's okay. When you do it, it's not. Because he's covering that up with righteousness. He's taking care of it and forgiving that guilt. And it's gone. He puts it out of sight. He removes it. And we get relief. Finally. Wised up. What's the relief? Why does he feel relief? Why do we feel relief when we... Because, friends, sin is a burden. Right? It's, it's a burden. So you've got this weight on you of sin that's going to crush you. And you've got God pushing that weight down. It's like being, in, like being a weightlifter instead of the guy spotting you and helping you with the bar. He's pushing down on the bar. It's God's doing that. You've got all that weight. Do you know the word here for forgive? Actually means, it's nasa. It means to carry away. So the remarkable picture that God is giving, that, that David is giving you of your God, of your father, is that the same daddy that's pushing down hard on you, this sin, to wake you up and save you. When you finally open up and confess to him, he takes that same mighty hand and he picks that burden up and carries it away. That's beautiful. So, come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted. Let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. So lay down your burden. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You are not too far. Lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, and come as you are. You don't have to clean up first because you can't. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to hide. You don't have to cover anymore because Yahweh is safe and the restorer of your soul. It's almost too much to hope for, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you ever feel that way? I'm 53 and I still, I can still get trapped and feel like this is too good to be true. It cannot be this easy. It can't just be that I admit it to you and you take care of it. Because I'm a serial sinner. I'm serially impatient. I'm serially short with my family. Not height-wise, mouth-wise. I am a felon in the courthouse of God. David Redding passes on a story that a prison warden loved to tell him. 
It involved a friend of the warden who was once on a train and noticed this fellow sitting next to him. He looked and saw that he was very low and woebegone and his young companion confessed that he had just been released from a distant penitentiary to now begin life as a former convict. He shared how his whole life had cast a shadow over his family. His criminal record had heaped shame upon them and he had lost almost all contact with all of them. But he couldn't help hoping against hope that the almost total silence of many years meant that his family was either too poor or maybe just illiterate to be able to write. So he said before his prison sentence was up, he had hatched a plan to find out how they felt about him, one that would not be too hard for either him or his family. He had written a letter home explaining that he would be on the train, the train that he's on with this man right now telling this story that would pass by their family's little farm on the outskirts of town. And if they could find it in their hearts to forgive him, they were to hang a single white ribbon on the old apple tree that was closest to the tracks. And if it was not hanging there when his train went by, he would not get off and he would never bother them again. As the train approached the familiar haunts of his childhood, the suspense was more than he could take. So he literally exchanged seats with his companion. I can't even look out the window. And he asked him to watch and report the result to him. In a minute, the tree was in sight and his companion's eyes filled with tears. And he said, young man, it's full of ribbons. Do you see? We are all on that train. And confession is the pathway and the breaking of the silence that gave us the ticket to be on the train but confession itself doesn't bring joy, right? You think about this. Confession doesn't bring joy. It's just the first step. The power for joy to be released, the power of relief from the burden that we carry can only come in forgiveness offered in the face of the confession. That's when the burden is carried away and all the guilt is gone with it. So that all of us sinners coming can come home to a tree filled with ribbons. That can only happen because of the forgiveness of God. And what we need to do to really believe in this forgiveness, family, maybe you don't even know this or understand this, the only way that we can really believe in this forgiveness is to ask the question, how is this possible? That's the question I had of Psalm 32. God how can you do that? Because we know this, right? It's not justice to just let someone off. If we see, if we're in a courthouse and someone comes up and the charges are listed and the judge just says, you know what, I'm just going to let you go free today. We cry out. <laughs> no! How many stories are we reading in the papers these days of prosecutors who won't prosecute crimes and judges who won't put people away because of, and there's a justice that rises up, justice that rises up and says, that's not right. 
And it's the same when I think of this record of debt that I accumulate every day. How can he, how can Yahweh do this? And the only way I know how to answer that question is through the joy I have in living in the age of Jesus. And here's where our biblical theology comes into play. And we transport everything we know about Jesus into this moment in Psalm 32 because in Jesus we have an answer to that question that liberates and lets us breathe in the air of joyous relief. It is Peter, who we were studying in sports camp this week, right, kids? It was Peter who says of Jesus that he carried our sins in his body on the tree. And how do the charges get dealt with? Colossians 2 Jesus erased our record of debt that was against us, taking it out of the way by being nailed and nailing it to the cross. Who pays for our sins in the record of debt? Isaiah tells us the fact is it was our pains that he carried our disfigurements and perversions, all the things wrong with us. It was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. It was our sins. And he took the punishment and he makes us whole. And through his bruises, we are healed so that we can sing, Jesus paid it all. Sing it with me. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, hallelujah. Yahweh in Jesus has done that so that you can walk out those doors today there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You don't have to hide anymore. Be honest with yourself. Yahweh is safe. Look at it. Verse 6. Let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. So David gives us one final negative reminder. We're wrapping up now. One final negative reminder and one final promise. The negative reminder is, if I try and hold my sin in, I'm gonna drown in floodwaters of judgment. Anybody ever come close to drowning? Anybody ever had that happen? I have. I was water skiing one time and uh, I'm back there, you know, at the end of the rope you know, you're kind of floating in the water and I don't water ski very often and you're just terrified that your arms are just going to be pulled right out of your sockets because I'm kind of morbid. That's how I roll. <laughs> and he hits the throttle, right? And I start to get pulled up because the idea is I'm going to get pulled up and over and I'm going to skim across the water and I'm going to be shooting like them waves up and it's going to be awesome. And instead, what happens to so many of us? Down and under. <laughs> and somehow the line got wrapped around my skis and my hands somehow in a second. And I think he's thinking, I got to keep the throttle down and I'll get him out of the water, right? Because all he sees is like, it's like when you're doing the bobber with the fishing line, right? Like there's just this like water and you can't see anybody, but he's going to come up and I'm not coming up and I can't signal and water starts going down my throat and down my nose and I can't breathe and I'm thinking I'm going to die. 
this is how I'm going to go out. Water skiing. <laughs> what the heck? There was so much promise. You know, that'd be the, there was so much promise for him. <laughs> and then somehow, just miraculously, the line frees and I'm up. And, but it was absolutely terrifying and David says that's what it's like when you hold in your sin you will drown he will drown you in the floodwaters of his judgment I hope you see it I hope he gives you the ability to see that today friends as a warning to you that there's still time to break the silence still time to come before Yahweh and say father forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation lead us but show us the traps and the snares and the temptations. Save us from the evil one. Protect us from the evil one so that we don't sin and transgress your law and and we become perverse and broken. See, the only one who can rightly judge us, and now here's the promise in verse seven, is the only one who can also set us free and carry away our guilt. Isn't that just amazing about who God is? Like he has this ability to judge us and weigh heavy on us, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to be afraid of him. We open up and it's now, you are my hiding place. You protect me from the trouble of sin. You surround me with songs of victory and deliverance. So wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt and your heart. Come as you are. The story of the prodigal comes to mind from Jesus, right? This is the picture that Jesus wanted to give. This is what it looks like. He'll accept you and welcome you and hold you and hug you and rejoice over you and forgive you. Every single time. Every single time. His grace is inexhaustible. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We got to I'm betting my life on that. He does that when we're completely honest. Listen, Satan will try and undermine this. Satan is going to remind you of your sin, okay? Guaranteed. You know this. Satan is going to tell you that you are not deserving of forgiveness and joy, that you cannot trust Yahweh, that he is not safe. He will tell you to hide and duck and cover. He will lie to you and try to deceive you. He will point out, and it's actually true. That's what's ironic. He will point out you're a serial sinner. And you have to be like Martin Luther, who when Satan did that to him, he said, Satan, go to hell. back with you. And do you, know, and do you know how else Martin Luther would respond? Satan, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> you don't. I am a serial sinner, but you know what? Jesus knows that and he is a serial savior. And as many times he has a behavior pattern that as many times as I sin, when I confess, he will forgive me just as many times. He keeps right up with me. Satan, so take that. So, friends, don't be stubborn. Don't be thick-headed. Don't hold things in, hardening your heart and numbing your conscience to the leading of Yahweh. Be open and sensitive. For Yahweh says, verse 8, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and I will watch over you. Trust him. 
Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. I remember going horseback riding one time on a horse named Lightning. Why did I get the horse named Lightning? Susan's horse was named Sunshine. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Well, this guy lived up to his name. I, it didn't matter. I was standing in the stirrups, holding the reins, pulling back like this. The horse's head was here, and he just went where he wanted to go. I hated that horse. And that horse is me. <laughs> so we do sometimes, don't we? And he says, don't be that way. Because many sorrows come to the wicked, verse 10. But unfailing love surrounds those who trust Yahweh. So rejoice. Here it is, right where he began. Rejoice in Yahweh and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Worship team, would you come up? Family, can we live in complete honesty with Yahweh? Let's do this. He has sent his spirit. You know, we're not on our own. He sent his spirit to help. And, and you know what else? We need to be completely honest with each other. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. I need, I need the elders. I so desperately need the elders of this church in my life. I need them to point out where I'm not following Jesus. I need them to be listening ears for me and wise counsel so that when I confess, brothers, I'm struggling here. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? We all need that. It's why community groups are so important. It's why being together in small groups of community so, so we can be honest with each other and live this life together. You can't do it alone. You just can't. You're not strong enough. Can everybody say, I'm weak? I'm weak. We need each other. So let's come to the altar. Let's face the darkness within and without. Let's bring it into the light, robbing of, of its power. There is joy in the presence of Yahweh. Family, there is hope of pardon for serial sinners.